This is The Intuitive Edge, episode 182. Today's guest, Connor Borrego. It's always so hard to figure out what's intuition and what's learned. Basically, like, there's definitely some intuition at play. I'm not really sure how to describe it, though. Welcome to The Intuitive Edge. I'm Victoria Lynn Weston, your host. I'm an intuitive business consultant, entrepreneur, and founder of Studio Carlton. We're a group of visionaries, producers, and developers of custom Amazon Alexa skills. I embrace big, bold ideas and love doing the unpredictable when it comes to helping business owners and professionals raise their visibility, expand their brand, and attract new business. The future is here, and it's all about voice. Check out StudioCarlton.com. Today, though, we're talking about NFTs. What are those, anyway? My guest today is Connor Borrego. He is a Midwest-based technology entrepreneur. He received his Master's of Science in Business Intelligence Systems from Syracuse University. And he received his Bachelor of Arts in Entrepreneurial Communications from the University of Michigan. He has worked from the past decade in the advertising technology industry, most notably as a startup growth consultant for Google. Currently, Connor is commercializing a blockchain-powered software to help musicians increase their earnings as an artist and grow their online audience. Well, Connor Borrego, it's a pleasure to have you here on the Intuitive Edge. Let's first ask you about what exactly is an NFT? Uh, That's a great question, Victoria. I think this is something that baffles a lot of people. Um, So it's NFT stands for non-fungible token, and once you get past that completely off-putting name, what it really is is a serial number for a piece of information, like a file or a data fragment that lives on the internet, but an internet secured by a blockchain database instead of our regular cloud ba- like cloud databases that we have today. NFTs themselves are uh, really just a tool for software developers to manage files and data, Um, But because of the way that the blockchain works, it makes like these digital fragments or these media files like images uh, collectible because they're scarce and trackable and they're one of a kind, um, you know, through this process. Very good. So even though you can have an NFT, basically register it um, with a serial number, this also applies to voice. So it's not just, you know, visual images. You can have an NFT for audio content as well. Isn't that correct? Audio content, written content, uh, video, con- like all, any form of content. Um, and, and it doesn't even have to be content. It can be your personal information as well. Um, if you look at the way in which, you know, things like your email address or your phone number are used to support the advertising industry, uh, that's really, you know, kind of an example of the, the real potential of NFTs, uh, because those are all valuable data points that, uh, you know, could be managed through an NFT. Same with, you know, an image, a video, music file, you know, the possibilities are endless with, you know, you know, being able to commercialize data. Um, you know, just the most well-known cases, obviously, are images, but this podcast could be an NFT at some point. And if you'd like to do that after the show, I'd be happy to help you mint it. Oh, I'd love to do that. I think it'd be exciting and, and cutting edge, to say the least. You know, you talk about uh, basically anything can be an NFT, and it sort of evoke this image of people that want to protect all their property in the case of something tragic, like a fire tornado, floods and all that. And that would be an excellent way to be able to do that because then it would be all registered and nobody would have to fight with the insurance companies and that type of thing. 
Absolutely. That's actually a fantastic use case for it. And and that's one of the things that, you know, treating everyday, you know, objects that you're purchasing as the grocery store as an NFT could have, you know, is is real, um, real visibility into the loss, uh, you know, that you might be experiencing. And, and that could help, you know, that might be a really attractive value proposition to insurance companies. Uh, because it'll be easier for them to manage what those payouts are because they'll have, you know, more predictability around those data points if consumers are actually providing, you know, the potential liabilities if one of these claims comes in. So let's talk about today. Yeah. And like a lot of artists, and I know this because I've, I've talked to uh, some people in like Vancouver and that, and a lot of people are kind of artists in particular, are a little squeamish on doing these NFTs because they think that their content is not necessarily secure or totally copywritten or even private data? How do you assure them that this is really the way to go to protect your data? Look, so I don't think this is the be all end all. And I'm not really sure if there will ever be that finite protect intellectual property rights to the max will ever come out of a technology based solution, to be honest. Um, But maybe that's just a lack of my imagination. But I think what it is, is it's an improvement upon the system that exists today. Right now, you know, it takes partnering with a gallery or working with some sort of art registry uh, to establish your work's provenance. Um, And and if you're really trying to pursue that fine arts career, building that track record around sales of your pieces and helping to establish that value is critically important to that. And um, it's not always something that's accessible to artists just getting started because of, you know, these closed networks that exist, um, you know, of of communities of art buyers who would potentially be interested in pieces, but, um, you know, aren't willing to shell out money to kind of unknown artists that haven't been kind of curated by an existing system. Anyways, uh, the long story short of that is for artists that are just kind of, you know, getting their feet wet and trying to build uh, you know, a name for themselves, this gives them a proof or receipts basically to point back to and say, no, this is the track record of what my my artwork is worth and how it has grown over time and appreciated in value. Um, and it, it's just a tool to kind of help artists, uh, you know, defend their value more than anything. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think that I think it's an excellent way, and I think it transcends beyond your basic copyright because anybody can, you know, manipulate things. You know, what I was thinking about though being able to protect your assets and that. I think chefs should use this because so often a lot of people hijack their recipes and they never give that chef, you know, credit, for instance. And I think that would be an excellent tool, particularly, you know, I don't know how how labor intensive it is to you know, go out and create the NFT, but I would think a chef could, you know, especially some really top secret types of things could uh, have some value with that as well. Now, how does the average consumer benefit from an NFT other than like we just talked about uh, protecting all their assets in their home? So if we're talking about how do NFTs, you know, really benefit consumers today, it's more of a access to a speculative investment class more than anything. If you are interested in collecting, you know, niche items already, stamps, uh, luxury hand goods or luxury goods like handbags or glasses or sandals or other fashion items, jewelry, uh, you know, sneakers, you, you name it. There, there's markets for all sorts of niche collectibles. And uh, this is going to be very similar where um, for a lot of technology enthusiasts, 
whether or not uh, these digital collectibles are used by brands that become sort of the next titans of industry, right, of, of the tech industry, uh, it doesn't really matter because it's receipts for the individual person who bought it to say, hey, uh, I was there while this was all getting built. And, you know, it, they're able to point and say, like, this is the point in time that project got created and I've been an owner of that item ever since. And regardless of whether or not, like I said, that that, you know, project, that company turns into something significant, it's still a timestamped receipt that they were a part of this, you know, industrial movement at the, you know, at this early point in time. And, and they can point to that for their own credibility, which is kind of an exciting thing that adds to someone's sort of prestige or whatever. But that's kind of the digital collectibles that consumers who are tech enthusiasts are, are, are considering today. But where NFTs are headed, right, <clears throat> is kind of something I think a lot of people probably in your audience care about. It's not just recording ownership of all of your assets, your entire inventory of household goods and maybe your business's inventory, but it, it it's data privacy at, at large. Um, Web3, which is kind of what blockchain NFTs sort of all, you know, kind of compass and revolve around, is the idea of user-owned data, you know? Um, so if you think of crypto wallets that hold your cryptocurrency today, the way that they work is they kind of act as like a, a security shell that you use to plug in uh, to different websites and apps to make payments. That's how these crypto wallets work. There's nuanced details about that, but we don't have to kind of like break that down right now. Um, but these same wallets that are holding your cryptocurrencies or crypto tokens to let you pay on these new apps and websites can also hold your personal information. And why this is so critically important is so much of the Internet economy is built off of the buying and selling of individuals, users information to sell advertising placements and to use that data to make uh, predictions about different economic forecasts. And there's tens of thousands of dollars that every individual user's, you know, digital identity gets resold for. Um, and, and crypto wallets can become a way to give consumers control over those, you know, kind of use cases uh, if a Web3 version of the Internet eventually is adopted by software developers. Um, and... That's kind of the most promising pieces. Not only can you remain private for real while you're browsing on the Internet, uh, if you don't care about your privacy, you can now be cut in on the potential earnings of your data. And that that's the long term potential of NFTs to consumers It's potentially thousands of dollars related to their digital breadcrumb trail and their digital identity. Very good. Now, you have sort of alluded to that an NFT is an investment platform and NFTs have become a new and viable way for people to fundraise for their business or their mm -hmm. cause through creating a digital membership. Can you unpack that for me? Absolutely. Yeah. So I don't think that uh, cryptocurrencies, crypto tokens should be, uh, you know, seen as this kind of futuristic far off thing so much as new names for things that we're already pretty familiar with. So, um, Basically, selling NFTs uh, to help uh, organize a community, to raise funds for a startup, for an organization, for a project, it's a form of pre-selling. Um, so you're, you're going out and you're doing pre-sales. 
uh, and the NFT is representative of the product that you're pre-selling. Um, sure, you have to buy it with cryptocurrencies and tokens, but usually these organizations are converting that back into US dollars to use to you know, actually move the organization forward. So one of the coolest examples of that is last fall, a, uh, a community called LinksDAO uh, got together and raised uh, I want to say it was like two to four million dollars um, at the time. I'm sure it's worth a quarter of that now. Um, but they, they raised that much money to go out and purchase a golf club together. And they sold, I think it was, you know, a couple hundred memberships, uh, but they weren't even memberships. It was right rights to access as the ability to purchase a membership uh, when the clubs become available. Oh. And so this was a great way to get money together between, you know, a couple hundred people to go out and purchase a club uh, instead of trying to raise funds, identify a potential club to, to bargain, go out and sell, get partners. You know, it, it really streamlined the whole process of, hey, we want to create this online country club to going out and actually doing that. That's an interesting way of handling an NFT, I have to say. I mean, the sky's the limit in so many ways. So you were saying that it's a good investment for us to have uh, our digital content or even, a, you know, for a small business owner, individual, and, um, and to basically protect that. That would go for everything, you know, a screenplay, a, uh, a book, and all that type of thing. Um, but here's the, here's the big catch. I got, I'm ready to do an NFT. Where do I go, and how do I trust that company? Um, so the nice thing is you don't have to necessarily trust the company you're using. Um, you just have to believe in the like blockchain technology securing it. Uh, so in this case, let's say that you want to go create an NFT of this podcast. We're going to probably need to, you know, a square picture, uh, a podcast album of our car, uh, artwork cover. And then uh, we're going to head over to OpenSea. And so there's two things you got to do here. You have to set up a MetaMask wallet um, and maybe we can, you know, send you a link uh, to share with your uh, your listeners yeah. so that they, they can follow that setup process if this is something they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they would have, head over to OpenSea. Now, OpenSea um, is the largest NFT marketplace out there. Um, and that's why I'm making this recommendation. They're kind of like the first biggest player in this space. Uh, there were definitely NFT marketplaces that came before them, but they're the one who has really kind of set the set the expectations. Um, and they do kind of the most sales. So it, it'd be the smartest place to also list your NFT for sale. But um, you would go onto their website. Uh, once you have your MetaMask wallet set up, you know, and go through the whole security measure because you don't want to, you know, lose the money if you're you're going out there to sell this. So you sign in with your MetaMask wallet to OpenSea. This is uh, the new sign-in process, signing in with your crypto wallet. And then you would go out and fill out your account data information, your name, you know, description, any websites or social platforms, whatever. The first thing you have to do once your account's set up is create a collection the collection is where your NFT is going to be listed. Um, you know, you could just do general name for it, like Connor Borrego's NFTs, right? Nothing special. And then you can finally actually go create an NFT. 
and there's just a button that you're able to click that says create NFT. You go through the form, fill out the title, the description, upload a picture. In this case, since we're talking about doing a podcast, we would click a button that says uh, allow uh, unlockable or downloadable content. You know, once you've checked that box, then you upload the MP3 file of this audio recording, right? Um, and then you assign it to the collection, add any other tags you want to help it get discovered because, you know, it's a search marketplace. And then you publish it and you, once it's published, can go click on it, list it for sale, set the price that you want to list it for, and then boom, it's out there. Even if you don't list it for sale, people could come see your item and offer you uh, an unsolicited, you know, sort of bid on the item and you, you could accept that if you wanted to as well. Um, but that, that'd be end to end the step of kind of creating your own NFT. When you go to publish it, um, you're going to be asked to pay a gas fee, which right now is probably somewhere between two and $14 for, for what you'd be doing is, which is initializing your wallet on OpenSea. Um, but, uh, you know, it's been as high as $200 in the past, $400. So, uh, you know, it's variable cost your NFT is going to likely be minted to the Ethereum blockchain. And this gets back to the point that I was making earlier, that you don't care whether OpenSea is listing the NFT for you. You care what blockchain it's being recorded on because you could go sell it on other marketplaces later on that use the OpenSea standard for, for creating your NFT. But all of that just means is like the way that the information in that data form you filled out is laid out. Um, and, you know, they, they're all agreeing to the OpenSea version so that they can use the NFTs created on OpenSea in their own marketplaces. So, you know, it's another good reason to use OpenSea. Very good. I think I'll have to put that in the show notes and do a step by step so everyone that isn't quite so techy uh, experience can kind of understand it. Cause I do think it's really important to, for people to kind of get on the bandwagon of the future. And this is certainly the future of how we are going to protect our digital and intellectual property, I think. So you said it's only about, Oh, I was going to say, we really can't um, do an NFT for this podcast because then there's no value in it. If we go public with this podcast, if we go public, oh. there's no reason to do an NFT. So there. I think that it comes down to what do you want the NFT to represent? If it represents simply a collectible that a fan could own uh, and that you'd use the funds to continue to fund the show, that could simply be enough. Uh, it doesn't have to do anything at all. You could just sell it as a collectible for someone who wanted to own the episode to say they owned it. Oh, okay, so like for a future like historical piece or something. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a form of fan engagement more than anything. If you wanted to bestow any rights to the person who bought the thing, it could be like this podcast is listed on your website, right? Uh -huh. So they buy it, uh, they could buy the advertising rights. So they can post, you, you could create a little placement for them on your blog post that allows them to say, hey, uh, you know, come buy this product off my website or buy this service from me. You know, do an ad placement, but... Uh, cut out the middleman and just, you know, whoever holds the NFT is gets to choose what the ad says on the blog post, you know? Uh-huh. But there's endless ways that you could do this. Um, and even if you took this public later on, you know, it uh, 
there, there are ways that you could set it up so it didn't, you know, affect that. Like just making it a collectible. And it's like, oh yeah, we have this stream of it, revenue coming from these collectibles. Some of our listeners purchase our episodes, you know, for like ten dollars just to say that they own it. That's cool. I love that idea. I may have to do that. So you have to show me how to do that again. So you, Connor, how do you benefit by going out and trying to educate all of us about the importance and value of starting an NFT? You know, right now, probably not much at all. <laughs> um, but what I'm doing is I, I'm building, you know, a software tool that's hopefully going to allow people to do just, you know, the things that I'm talking about today, which is a, a crypto wallet to manage your personal information and allow you to monetize it or keep it private if you want to. Um, but the way that I'm going about doing that is building, you know, productivity tools for small business owners, um, because I think that, uh, you know, content creators are small business owners uh, who, you know, could benefit the most from this NFT technology. Um, and what they really need is some help, you know, growing their audience and help monetizing those that audience once they get there. So if I can provide them a software suite to do that, um, that also has this added benefit of, you know, really owning their content through NFTs, I, I think I can, you know, grow this into something that all consumers uh, would use. So it's called UniPro, and I'm working specifically with record labels and musicians to help them grow their fan base, sell more merch, and create collectible, you know, songs and albums for their fans to collect as a new form of revenue stream, um, you know, while I'm, you know, working to secure all of their data uh, to the blockchain to, to enable this you own your data, you know, situation. I guess the NFT is valuable to a lot of artists, but it kind of makes me think someone that does screenwriting, you know, on the side, I'm always looking mm -hmm. to find the, the original script of a director or of the original mm -hmm. writer because once they, the director has and the producer, it, it's completely different. It's not the original script, and mm -hmm. and you never can find them. So I think every screenwriter, professional or novice, should go out there and have an NFT because that, to me, is very valuable and very much a learning experience for people that are writers and looking to others that have great storytelling ability that can share their you know their, their layouts, if you will. No, I love that idea, and I know it's such a challenging process to get a project sold anyway, so um, I think seeing what a screenplay looks like, you know, before it gets sold and being able to see what it looks like afterwards would absolutely be incredibly valuable, and I, I think what would be cool about that is if you almost force the producers or the editors or the studios or whomever to, to buy the original scripts as an NFT, um, you could, you know, not only see how that evolves over time, uh, but, you know, it, it could create, you know, this secondary market of collectibles for people to potentially buy good screen, you know, screenplays in advance and have them sitting in a vault to be resold down the road. Like, I know that that sounds terrible to, I'm sure, a writer, but it could increase the value of the project over time and, you know, uh, yeah, I, I could see there being huge demand for for collectibles like this, especially to you know film enthusiasts and buffs. So, well, it would certainly raise uh, the visibility of the writer and put a spotlight on it because so many writers never really get credit anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that would be you know one way to do something like that. So, where uh, does everybody go? I mean, do they go out right now and get all excited about an NFT and you know hook up with? I'm sure I'll put this in the show notes, but where's that website you were talking about? OpenSeed. Oh, OpenSeed. Yeah, so. 
I'd say the majority of like the hyping up occurs in places like Discord or Twitter. Um, Discord just being like, I'm sure people are familiar with Slack, a video game version, a right. video game seeming version of Slack. Um, but but basically just a communications platform. But uh, all these people are getting excited about it sort of over on social channels like Twitter and sharing essentially links to OpenSea, which is the large marketplace. And uh, they're often buying uh, collections together um, because some of these artists or projects will do um, kind of like a cartoon animation uh, where, you know, just slight traits or variables of the character will change uh, so that they can have a huge collection of uh, collectibles. Um, but oftentimes, like, just like that Link's DAO example we talked about earlier, uh, instead of, like, a physical country club, they're um, basically just access to online social clubs. Um, and, and so some of these NFTs are being used to, like, create sort of exclusive you know, groups for people to communicate and talk with each other. And so you have to buy your way into the community, basically. How does your intuition play into all this? I mean, did you get like an intuitive vibe about NFTs and that's why you wanted to go out and talk about that and maybe help that sort of launch what you're into as well? You know, it's always so hard to figure out what's intuition and what's learned. Basically, like there's definitely some intuition at play. I'm not really sure how to describe it, though. I've always been super like tech nerdy, geek, whatever. Um, so like growing up in my free time, I was like learning how to use Tor, which is kind of like one of the predecessor technologies to Bitcoin, um, you know, to, to pirate movies and television. I shouldn't admit that, but you know, I did that as a young kid. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have money to pay for those things. And I was like, oh, it's free online. And if I use this, it's called onion routing. Uh, no one can see that I'm downloading it, basically. Um, and so it gave me privacy through the encryption technology, and that's what I meant by it's related to Bitcoin. Um, and so I learned a lot of these things. I learned about a lot of these technologies when I was young to kind of accomplish different things that I wanted because I'm, I'm just a big movie and TV buff and you know comedy nerd also. And so that's that's all I wanted to do was do that, and I didn't have any money to kind of do it, so I did that, and it exposed me to a lot of these technologies. And then uh, when I got my first job out of college, the CEO of the company kind of took me under his wing after you know kind of working there for a little bit of time, and he was really into cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, and I had already done some reading on the space, you know, because I'm just also a big reader, and. Uh, you know, it was then they kind of just started pushing me to continue to consume the information, understand it more, whatever. Um, but I, I don't know. It's like, is it intuition? Is it learned? I just kept kind of following the signs. No, because when you had that curiosity it, to go and explore something that you didn't know about beforehand, you know, by yeah. being learned, such as a book, taking a class and that type of thing. So you yeah. had that intuitiveness that you wanted to fix something or to learn about something. Mm -hmm. And without that intuition, you would have had to go and read more things. You would have to read books and take classes and that probably a lot more hours than you did. So I would say your intuition was very much a part of the key for opening up the, uh, your mind to the, the technology world. And I think it still is. Absolutely. I was definitely following some sort of like pulling force for sure. Cause, uh, 
that curiosity just kept pulling me further down the rabbit hole. And it actually led me to going back to getting degrees to help support this. And, you know, my career path just happened to continue to be in a place that intersected really heavily with the space. Like the advertising technology industry is completely supported, uh, you know, on the buying and selling of consumer data. And NFTs are just a data management technology software. And then I, you know, got my master's degree in data management sciences for business intelligence applications. And, you know, I had already been following this curiosity of blockchain and cryptocurrency for a while. And then, you know, they, they just all mix together at some point. Yeah, very much so. So you're so well-versed and so well-spoken. I, I feel like, Connor, you should be going out and doing TED Talks. Well, I, you know, that'd be really fun, really cool. Uh, I would love to do something like that if the opportunity ever came up. But for now, I, I'm just going to keep working on, like, building the software because something's got to pay the bills. <laughs> well, you should go to, um, I, I think you said it was, is it Seed? The, the place uh, that re where you register an NFT? Oh, yeah, OpenSeed. OpenSeed, yeah. OpenSeed <laughs> Open should have you as a, a spokesperson and um, recommend you as a, a speaker for a TED Talk because it's exciting. And I, I, and I share that enthusiasm because I love new and innovative ways of, of exploring life in general. And I think this is, this is the future and everybody's going to have to have NFT. You might as well learn you know, how to have it now and protect your digital assets as opposed to waiting until it becomes more you know, I don't know, consumer palatable, if you will. And by then everybody's done all the good stuff. No, I, I totally agree. And I really appreciate your enthusiasm for this and just embracing kind of like the emerging technology space and kind of new ideas in general. I feel like so many people just are like, why, why change the way we're doing something? And it's just like, well, like, you know, you don't even know what the possibilities could be if you don't start to consider them. And I, I don't know. So many closed-minded people, it's always refreshing to, you know, have a conversation with someone who's looking towards the future and how we can all be better. No, it's true. And I think it goes back to the unknown. It goes back to intuition and people not being able to grasp that or extrasensory perception. And it's the unknown that scares people and that it raises, you know, healthy skepticism, of course, but... You know, and that's people can read it in a book or make sense on their own. They just sort of walk away from it. You know, that process of taking high technology and making it accessible to everyday people, I think, is just always the struggle. You know, there's few people that really understand it well enough to explain it to, you know, even a five-year-old, you know. And, and I think that when we get to that capacity, then, you know, we're kind of in a state where, you know, consumers can actually start to take advantage of these things. And the faster we get there, the better, just because there's, like you said, the longer we wait, the, the, you know, kind of the more that the space is going to be occupied and less opportunities for them, uh, the longer they, they hold out. I mean, I see a world where we come home and, you know, Alexa has evolved and you just come in and there's a wall, I guess a screen, if you will, an LCD screen. And maybe you're downloading and looking at your home assets or maybe you're looking at all your collectibles from your NFTs. And it's all about voice, hands-free, voice-activated content and never having to be tethered to your desk again. Oh, yeah. I, that or maybe it'll be VR for some people. I think it's really going to be, uh, you know, kind of consumer's choice. And that's where we want to be anyways, is people like optionality. They like to have it their way. And, you know, the more we can continue to cater to that, I think the better. Uh, but, you know, 
I told like I, walking home to a voice activated smart wall sounds amazing. So uh, <laughs> that's definitely on my bucket list. Regardless yeah, I think it'd be great. You know, consumer friendly or not. <laughs> no, it is. But there's a lot of people and <clears throat> I have a couple of family members that are just like too paranoid to have a an Amazon Echo device. You know, and <laughs> and I kind of look at him. I just like, oh God, unless you plan on murdering somebody, I said, what's the big deal? You know, it's. Eh. Yeah, no, it, I mean, this is kind of where uh, Web3 technologies would negate that anyways, because, you know, it would all go into your home's crypto wallet. And then if you want to share that data, you can, but it would probably be all stored locally with you. Um, and, and then you wouldn't even have those concerns, but you'd have all the advantages of the technology. And so it's a win-win. But I... I I don't disagree. I do think some of those concerns are really valid around data privacy. Um, and while I personally don't care because I'm like, do you know how many hours of footage and information they'd have to go through? I talk a lot. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it just doesn't seem feasible. I know that they're using it to tailor ad data to people. They won't ever admit that, but I'm I'm sure it's indirectly connected to the data sets. Well, the and, television is as well. So and yeah, it's, it's like, like the computer and the TVs. The television, yeah. and they, they, they tell you that that one's connected, but they, they say that the audio stuff isn't connected to ads, but it's too serendipitous for it not to be. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. So where can people connect with you? I know you're on LinkedIn. I don't know if you have a website. Can you tell us how they can connect with you and follow all the interesting, innovative projects you're involved in? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the LinkedIn's probably one of the best spots to go. I also have a website, connorborrego.com, where you can get links to, uh, I have a digital marketing and web development agency called Emergent Digital. And then the company that I'm, you know, working to promote is called Unipro. It's one of these, uh, you know, crypto wallets for your personal data. It's much more than that, but that's kind of a quick summary of it. Very good, and I'll have you can send me the links too, and I'll put it in in the show notes as well. But it's been a pleasure talking with you, Connor. And um, as I say goodbye to our audience, I want to connect with you about putting our NFT um, as a collectible on. Uh, yeah, I'd love to help you put it live on OpenSea. That'd be a ton of fun. We should definitely just follow up over email to do that, and I guess we'll do that because I have to send you a decent amount of information. So. All right, do that. I appreciate it. <laughs> you have a great day, and uh, we'll talk again soon. You as well. Thanks so much for having me, Victoria. Bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the show today. And I hope that you venture out and learn how to mint your own NFT. It's so exciting. I'm about to do our own NFT today with this particular podcast with Connor Borrego. So hop on to OpenSea and look and search Intuitive Edge Podcast and check out what this first minted NFT will be all about. Before I let you go, I want to make a prediction. I predict Connor Borrego is going to be a name, a very much a household name in the very near future. I mean, near future could mean a lot to a lot of different people, but let's just say the next two to five years, and I think his contribution and technology is going to be very significant, and I would have to expect him to have some sort of multi-billion dollar company on his own. So Connor, hats off to you, and, we'll, and keep us posted with all your success. The Intuitive Edge is produced by Western Media Group, LLC, Atlanta, Georgia.